Well, to discuss the state of our public health facilities, I'm joined now by the Daily Mavericks' Mark Haywood, who has spent much of his career focusing on health issues. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Listening to those two reports is just utterly disheartening. It is not exactly a newsflash that our public health system is under serious strain. We've known that for a long time. But what surprised me is the story from the Eastern Cape that 80% of people who go onto a ventilator with COVID-19 in a public hospital just don't recover. Shouldn't we be doing better by now? I mean, I can just first say that it's distressing and, and shocking to listen to those, those reports. And it's even more distressing when, as you say, all of this is preventable. People are suffering and people are dying who do not need to suffer and die. I think it's safe to say that health and healthcare in general have been front of mind for most of us the past couple of years in ways we may never have imagined possible in a pre-COVID-19 world. And perhaps one of the most shocking realities many more affluent South Africans experienced during this time was a lack of access. Access to things like good healthcare and information. Access to the equipment needed to keep people breathing. When hospital beds were full, they were full and nothing could be done about it. This is sadly a reality that many South Africans faced long before the pandemic and will continue to face in the years to come as a result of a public healthcare system that is rife with challenges. Welcome to this episode. I am Domini Marangani, Senior Manager at the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. In this episode, we'll be unpacking public health and why it matters both economically and socially that we get this right. We'll also hopefully develop an understanding of how transformational and innovative thinking can shift the way we engage with this reality and how investing in public health can yield unexpected returns. According to a statistics study published in 2021, just over 16% of South Africans are on some form of private medical aid. This places an enormous burden on an already strained public health care system. And the fact is that this is not merely a social issue. The impacts of this are economic too. An article published by McKinsey & Company in 2020 outlining how public health contributes to building economies says that, quote, better health fueled global growth over the past century by enlarging the labor force and increasing productivity. In fact, economic historians estimate that improved health accounted for about one third of the overall GDP per capita growth of developed economies in the past century, end quote. Now, I know what you may be thinking. That's all well and good, but what does this actually mean in real life terms, and especially when it comes to banks and the private sector? What kind of role is there for them to play? Could there be a link between the worlds of investing in public health? Joining me now to discuss this further is public health expert, Dr. Niveline Slingers. Niveline is the executive program manager of the Social Impact Bond at the South African Medical Research Council. Her specialties include sustainable value creation in complex environments, innovation and strategy, as well as health programs, including HIV, TB, and STIs. Welcome, Neveline. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be part of this conversation. Wonderful. Neveline, what does inclusivity look like in healthcare and what are the barriers to equity to healthcare in South Africa today? So the main challenges are that funds that are available are not used effectively and efficiently. 
this is made worse by the fact that there's very little collaboration between government departments who are seeking to address the same challenges. Um, and then also the input from the private sector is not really well aligned with government policy and what communities need. And of course, it is at a very low level of investment. Um, other underlying issues are lack of control and management of the private health sector costs. And lastly, I should say that we have to acknowledge that we have a dysfunctional health service for many reasons, and that, of course, needs to be addressed. So I think overall, there seems to be very little collaborative action to put all this information together and then guide investment and action in priority areas that will drive the changes in access and equity. In the end, everybody does their own thing, lots of money is spent, and the change is too slow and insufficient. And I suppose in the South African setting, we have to acknowledge the fact that we, this is all complicated by corruption and the specific challenges brought about by apartheid. So what you're describing is layers of complexity and, and difficulty that act as barriers to equitable access to healthcare. Um, and it sounds like a systems level solution, or at least a systems level um, brainstorming is what has to happen rather than just trying to tinker around with one particular aspect of the health system whilst leaving the others untouched. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, I agree with it. We have to be honest in understanding the challenges, understanding communities, where people are coming from, and we need to work together in a new way. So we need a new kind of leadership to lead this, this change that we need in making sure that we use all the funds that we have uh, more effectively and efficiently. Um, and obviously what we're trying to do with the social outcome-based contract is the start of trying to drive a paradigm shift in that area. This is an exciting innovation, um, the outbase comes contract that you just mentioned. I'd like to ask you to tell us about what the Medical Research Council is doing to mobilize private capital for social outcomes focused on improving the health and well-being of adolescent girls and young women. Firstly, can you tell me what is a health social outcomes-based contract? For a novice, it's quite difficult to sometimes understand uh, what the social outcomes-based contract is. Um, but basically, it has a few players. It has an implementer who implements an intervention, a private sector or donor who provides the upfront capital, and an outcomes funder, which can be government or a donor, who then provides the funds when outcome targets are achieved. So in this transaction, the private sector or donor provides upfront funding to kickstart the implementation. And then as the targets are achieved, the outcomes funds are made available for further implementation. And that is also used to reimburse the investor. Obviously, with the focus of a health social outcomes-based contract, our focus is on, is on health outcomes. But there's a lot that influences the health outcomes. I should also mention that um, with our outcomes-based contract, the investor can achieve the return of the capital plus a percentage return uh, that is based on the level of achievement of the outcome targets. Uh, the MRC plays the role of the intermediary um, who has brought all the stakeholders together. We've designed the financial model, all the terms for the investor. Uh, we've done all the contracting and we ensure the intervention is implemented optimally. 
We have also included a performance manager and an independent verification agent. So in this way, um, in our social outcomes-based contact, we have a unique position. We in It's the first outcomes-based contact in South Africa with government providing the um, outcomes funds. And in this way, government only pays for the successful programs. And at the end of the intervention, government can scale up interventions that are clearly costed and have proven to show the necessary outcomes. Obviously, also the private sector gets a return if the intervention is successful, as well as contributing to the social impact of the intervention, which in our case, we're focusing on outcomes related to HIV and teenage pregnancy. You have mentioned that it's the first health sector social outcomes-based contract in South Africa. Can you tell us more about the intervention that you're proposing and what the expected outcome is? So this social outcome-based contract aims to improve HIV and teenage pregnancy for outcomes for adolescent girls and young women. We're focusing in 14 high schools across the Moritele and Newcastle sub-districts. We have a unique comprehensive package of services being offered and we'll be tracking many services including how many HIV and pregnancy testing happens. If a person is HIV negative we want to link them to pre-exposure prophylaxis and if they are HIV positive we want to make sure that they are on antiretroviral treatment as well as maintained on the treatment. We want to focus on the uptake of contraception services so making it more freely available um, and making more options available. And if a person is pregnant, we want to make sure that they are referred to the antenatal clinic before 20 weeks gestation, because that is linked to more positive outcomes, both for the mother and the infant. Obviously, this forms part of a a comprehensive package that focuses on different um, aspects of comprehensive sexuality education, HIV prevention, psychosocial services, um, mental health services. It's quite a comprehensive package. The the package is an evidence-informed package, but there will be a focus on flexibility and innovation so that the implementer can respond to feedback from stakeholders and make changes to the evidence-informed package if the desired outcomes are not achieved quickly enough. Also, it's important to note we are doing an impact process and an and economic evaluation, because we want to identify the impact of the intervention and the cost, including a value for for money analysis, and the implications thereof for scale-up by government if the program is successful. Um, Currently, we are at the final steps of government approval and contracting, and we hope to launch in February 2023. So already we have a private investor, we have chosen an an implementer, and we have government as the provider of outcomes funding. Sounds very exciting. So given that you're piloting this innovative approach to bringing resources into the public health sector, what benefits do you envision from the inclusion of private sector capital um, as changing the way that health is delivered as a public good? I think we see it happening on many levels. Um, Firstly, It will allow us to set up and implement the first outcomes-based contract of its kind in South Africa with government providing the outcomes funds. And this sets a precedent, which we hope to build upon by assisting the National Treasury 
to clarify the management of outcomes-based contracts in the existing legal framework. So once you have a precedent, you can do more. Secondly, we will learn a lot from this outcomes-based contract, and we will set up a learning agenda and network to engage more broadly with stakeholders, to advance everyone's knowledge, understanding, and comfort with this kind of transaction. So this once again furthers the opportunities for more outcomes-based contracts. Thirdly, we'd like to see this as a start of engagement with the private sector as part of the impact investing strategy, as we feel that the MRC is well-suited to identify and develop evidence-informed interventions that are best placed for this form of innovative financing. The MRC can play a key role in the ecosystem for impact investing, because we have links to government, implementers, and academia, um, and we have expertise and connections in all of those areas. Uh, fourthly, we hope to also benefit from the input of the private investor in terms of oversight and driving performance management as a way of driving efficiency and effectiveness, because the private sector is well known for that. We want to learn how to incorporate that into our health programs. So in these ways, the private sector will be working with the government to drive innovation, to enable a different way of providing services and delivering public good. So we hope that this will then help drive the necessary paradigm shift, which is needed for that collaborative action and the special kind of leadership that I referred to earlier. How does this opportunity to integrate public and private resources for public health change the conversation about equity and inclusion? I think the, the public and private resources in this instance are aligned with and supporting the implementation of government policy and are in fact trying to find the most effective and efficient intervention to implement a specific part of the integrated school health policy in the case of this outcomes-based contract. This will then direct the use of government resources which are already available and it will drive it towards greater efficiency and impact, and obviously then advancing the ability of government to advance equity and access to programs that enable the goals of the integrated school health program to be realized. Because that is the challenge. Government might have a good policy, but they don't have the effective and efficient programs that enable those policies to be implemented. This will also allow the government to more accurately budget for such impact and free up funds that were previously applied to less efficient and effective interventions. Secondly, um, the focus on outcomes rather than just counting numbers of people reached is the way the conversation will be changed. So focusing on outcomes causes you to evaluate the baseline to understand uh, where, what kind of services are being delivered now, determine what change you want to see, and then measure and demonstrate the change that you achieve. So because the outcome is measured as a percentage change, whether in a behavior, access, could be jobs created, mortality or morbidity, or a change in specific disease profile, it's more meaningful than a change in numbers reached. So this kind of analysis of what you want to achieve forces one to include aspects of inclusivity and equity, as significant change in coverage and impact can't be achieved by focusing on small areas of need. As an example, um, often government departments set their targets in their performance framework that are linked to numbers of people reached, 
But if you don't understand what the denominator is, to understand what the percentage of coverage is, those numbers don't mean much. Because in reality, the number might mean that they're only planning to reach 1% of the people in need. When you know that to bring about significant change, you're actually going to need to reach many more people. And that then links to the question of equity and, um, and access. Flexibility seems to be really central um, to your vision for collectively addressing the health equity challenge. And finding new ways to approach the collective challenge of health equity requires collective action. From the health sector perspective, what do you wish that the private sector knew? I think it's impossible to expect the private sector to become experts in health and what is needed and where best to invest their funds. I think that there's really a need for an intermediary to bring together all the stakeholders and motivate all for collaboration, as I don't think this will happen on its own. Because uh, what we're talking about here is change management, which takes time and effort. So I wish as a start that private equity understood this and started by collaborating perhaps amongst themselves to fund this change that you want to see for their sustainability. Because I think that what change are we looking for that will bring more inclusiveness and equity? I feel we have to work with an understanding that people don't have hope and hence it takes more than service provision to change inequity because you have to build the capacity of people to have hope. And that involves expanding the soft things like arts, sports, worldview, sense of identity. So the soft issue that the private sector can work on to support the service provision by government. Because together I feel that we can have an additive effect, which is much more than working on their own. Given the continuous advancement in medical science and health promotion, what would you say is being overlooked from a policy perspective? I think it is about how to make innovation innovations available at the right price and at the right level. I think we've got a few examples that we learned from during uh, the COVID lockdown period when, for example, point-of-care devices were used to monitor patients and health personnel manage those patients via WhatsApp. But for this to happen, you need these point-of-care devices to be affordable, reliable, easy to use, and you need reliable, affordable internet access and affordable cell phones. So if we could work together between government and the private sector to have these available, the usage of these services would increase and patients could get patient-centered assistance in their homes without the cost of attendance at government facilities. Because government and patients talk a lot about patient-centered or community-centered or people-centered care, um, but we're not really using innovation to be able to deliver that. The thinking is still that we must focus on bringing people to health facilities. But COVID has taught us that we don't necessarily need to bring people to, to health facilities. So for me, I think we need to turn that on its head and say, how can we do it more effectively um, using other tools and then work to bring down the price of those tools? And that's where the private sector can play a role. As you've said, transformational leadership is critical to reshaping approaches to health equity and health access. In your view, how can we partner and experiment with the private sector in an effort to transform and equitably distribute a public good? 
Um, as part of the, at the MRC, what we are thinking of doing, or, or should I say are doing, is um, establishing a platform to advance the development of outcomes-based contracts and other forms of innovative finance to try and get these relationships started, to try and um, bring stakeholders together, to bring a better understanding, to start the dialogue, building the trust, trying to drive the networking. And ultimately, uh, what we want to do is take the knowledge translations from, from these lessons and translate that into government policy and practice. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Neverly. Thank you very much. And I certainly hope that people in the private sector will take up this challenge um, because, you know, I think sometimes investment always drives change. Um, and sometimes government needs some uh, push to be able to see a better future. What struck you about this conversation? For me, it's recognizing that there are financial instruments that can directly impact the development of a more equitable public health sector. If you told me that a few years ago, I would not have believed you. Moving away from a purely consumeristic understanding of healthcare, be that selling band-aids or medical aids, and thinking about the other 84% of South Africans who rely on the public healthcare system. We need to move towards a more holistic and preventative healthcare system rather than being curative in focus. In my view, the first step of this is transformational leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode on public health. We trust you found it helpful.